0: Let us consider for a moment the last two nights that we've just experienced and what they mean for us. First of all, the Passover. All of this began with the Passover in Egypt, about 1,500 years before Christ uh, was crucified. But it all began there and God had in mind. It wasn't just a uh, a yeah, nice little thing, well, I, I wonder what we'll do. How will we get the children of Israel out of Egypt? And, uh, you know, what, what can we do to really catch their attention? No, God had in mind a way to catch their attention for sure, but he had a plan, a purpose. And the Passover was to look forward to an event nearly 1,500 years in the future. In John, the first chapter, in verse 29, he said, Behold, this was John the Baptist talking to his disciples, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And just as they slew a lamb, slaughtered a lamb or a firstling goat or first young goat there, Christ had to be slain as the Lamb of God. The lamb that would take away the sins of the world, his blood would be shed on our behalf just as the blood of that goat or lamb was shed to protect the people inside the firstborn. In 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and I'll turn over there very briefly, we almost have to turn to this at some time. It's such an important scripture, especially for new people, especially for young people who may sometimes wonder, well, what is this that mom and dad are doing? Uh, is this really what God wants of us? But here in First Corinthians the fifth chapter and verse seven it says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Christ is our Passover that's something that the world doesn't really know for the most part. They don't realize that the day that Christ was crucified was the day of the Passover, even though it's mentioned about a dozen times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's very clear that the Last Supper was the Passover. And so oftentimes when people ask us, what are we doing, uh, they, they mention the Passover. Certainly we can say, well... What we do at the Passover is we do the same thing that Christ did on the night in which he was crucified. We don't have the big meal, but we have the bread and the wine and the foot washing ceremony and so forth. We're doing the same thing Christ said and instructed his disciples to do on an annual basis, as we read there in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, where it talks about... Uh, doing the, the bread and the wine, but it's all in the context as the book of or the letter of First Corinthians uh, is all about the Passover time, the days of unleavened bread, and all through here we find references to it. And so it must have been right after the Passover, and Paul may have written this actually during the days of unleavened bread, might have gotten to them before the days were over. But he was giving them instruction because they were not doing it right or correctly. But Christ is our Passover that is sacrificed for us. And that ought to bring great joy to all of us. We ought to rejoice in that fact. Because without that sacrifice, we're dead. It's just that simple. We're dead. And we have no hope of eternal life. It is interesting that John 3.16 is quoted by so many people in this world. You'll see it in the end zone of a football game or behind home plate sometimes. Somebody will have a sign there or on a rock, painted on a rock on the side of the road or a billboard. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He gave us His Son as a sacrifice that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's hard for us to imagine what life would be like without this hope. If there was no hope, if we were like the animals, except that we would have the ability to comprehend life and not living, and we'd really be able to comprehend these things, animals have a fear of Dying or danger, they recognize that. But are they able to comprehend eternity and to understand that? And so God has put eternity into our hearts and our minds. But what would life be like without that sacrifice that God offered for us? And the father had to watch his son. And the son had to go through that terrible, brutal beating and death finally on the stake. Much of the world believes that the, the plan of God, in a sense, ends there. That Christ died for us, and that's all that there is to it. All we have to do is just believe. Without understanding what it means to believe, that we are to believe to the point of action, they believe that it all ended there. But in reality, we find from these holy days that that's only the beginning. And it's good from time to time to review that booklet on the subject of the Holy Days, God's Master Plan. It is God's Master Plan for mankind. And what a wonderful truth that is. We take it for granted sometimes, especially if we've been around a few years or a few decades. We can kind of take that for granted, but the world does not know that. They don't keep these days. They don't understand each step in the plan of God. And neither did we until God opened our minds. We're no better than they are. It's just that God has called us now, and He's going to call many of those or most of those people later on. He's going to give them an opportunity later on. It may be in the second resurrection, or it may be in the years to come. But that's a wonderful truth that God has given to us. I hope that we really, truly rejoice in it. But that's not the end. Passover is not the end. Israel had to flee from Egyptian slavery. If they'd stayed there in Egypt, they still would have been slaves. They had to pick up their their goods, whatever they had, grab their children, and walk to Ramses. And then from Ramses, on what we observed last night, the night to be much observed, they went out at night and they began that journey out of sin. Here in 1 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, we left off at the end of verse 7, where it says, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, but the very next verse says, Therefore, therefore, because he has been sacrificed for us, let us keep the feast. Let us do something. This is our response to Christ's sacrifice. Let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Malice is what goes on in the mind. Wickedness are the actions that we, we perform. And we are to change that into sincerity, which is a different attitude of mind and in truth. And over in First John We're told to walk in truth or practice the truth. It is what we do. It is not only mental, but how we act, how we live our lives. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread pictures our response to Christ's sacrifice. And here is a New Testament command, therefore let us keep the feast. And he shows how we are to keep it there. Over in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, Hebrews 11, we find that the first one to to leave Egypt, you might say, was Moses. And Moses had a choice to make, just as each one of us has had to have or to make a choice. And all of us who are baptized made that choice if we did it with truly sincerity of heart. We made the choice to come out of Egypt, and I hope that we are truly following that that commitment that we had. It's so easy to get caught up in this world, the ways of this world, the distractions of this world, and yet we have to continue to come out of Egypt. It wasn't just a single act, but we are to continue coming out of Egypt, and so here we read about Moses will begin in verse 24 by faith. Moses, when he came of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He made a, a conscious choice, and here was someone who had, who lived in the palace, who had all of the wonderful things that would come to someone of nobility. Uh, it, I think Josephus says that he was a general. He was someone of high esteem in the society of Egypt. But he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And I think it's always important to remind even, again, especially our young people, and we have so many young people here, that sin is pleasurable for a time, for a time. I am sure that smoking marijuana has some benefit to it, or people wouldn't do it. Sex outside of marriage has some pleasure to it. But there's always a penalty to pay sometime after that. I love the way that the old King James puts it. It says, then, to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. means the same thing, the passing pleasures of sin, but when you think about it, The pleasures of sin, yes, but only for a season. Because there is a kickback, there is a penalty to be paid. And one of the lessons that we learn from these days of unleavened bread is that sin is bondage. Sin is slavery. And for those who like to get all caught up in uh, in psychology and some of the terms that people throw about, sin is addictive. It enslaves us. And people don't realize that. They start out maybe smoking because they think, well, that's cool. I'll be uh, like all my friends. But eventually, you become enslaved to that habit. And people struggle to overcome it. And they pay a very heavy price when it comes to their health or lack thereof. So we, too, As Moses, we must flee from Egypt. As it says in verse 27, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And then verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea. That was where they burned their bridges behind them, we might say, except it was a watery bridge in this case. But they they left behind Egypt, at least physically. Sadly, they did not leave behind Egypt spiritually. And just as they were baptized, as it says there in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in the cloud and under the cloud and the sea. So we've been baptized, but it's a warning to us not to think, well, that's the end it's just the beginning. We must go on uh, from there. Jesus tells us in Mark, the first chapter, in verse 15, to repent and believe the gospel. That was the beginning of his message, was to repent. Dr. Merrith had a sermon on the R word. I don't remember the, the title of it, but you can look that up. On, it was about the R word. The the word repent or repentance. is something that Often is forgotten in this world. We read in Acts the second chapter in verse 38 where Peter, when the people said, okay, we, we recognize we killed the Messiah, you know, he convicted them of killing the Christ in verses 36 and 37. And they said, well, what, what do we do? Brethren, what do we do? Where do we go from here? And he said, repent. And they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the repent was the first part of it to turn around and go a very different direction. Over in Colossians, the third chapter, Colossians 3 and verse 5, it tells us what we are to do, and this is what we should be doing. And it's, it's refreshing when you talk to people on these days. It's on people's minds. It's on the members' minds that we, we need to make changes. We need to really get serious about What is happening in our world today and where we are and the recognition that we have to make these changes in life. I mentioned in a sermon, the last sermon I gave, I think it was, where I I talked about picking out one or two sins or weaknesses that you have. Something that you'd like to overcome. What I forgot to mention in that was that every day when you get up, be sure to pray about it. Focus on that on a daily basis, every single day, until that is overcome, and then move on to something else, although don't totally forget about it, because sins can crop back up again. But really focus on it on a daily basis. Meditate on it. Think about it. Where do I commit these sins, or what are the circumstances that happen? We were coming home from the Passover just to show how fast these things happen. We're we're driving back from Passover and, and, you know, the construction area on 485. And it's a narrow area there and the the road is not exactly even in some places. And we were in the left-hand lane to pass somebody. And we passed, but there's a solid line there showing that you're not supposed to pull over, change lanes in that area. And a big 18-wheeler came up behind us traveling over the speed limit because I wasn't going below the speed limit. I was going about the speed limit, but I wasn't going below. So you can figure that out any way you want to. But, uh, you know, and he was riding on our tail, and I waited until there was, you know, a dotted line instead of the, the solid line. I could have pulled over. I suppose it wouldn't have mattered that much. I don't think I wasn't worried about getting a ticket. But this is what the law says, so I'll I'll try to obey that. And when I pulled over finally, he came roaring by and he honked his horn at me. So what did I do? I said, "Same to you, buddy." I honked my horn. And I got thinking about it later. Is that the response that we're supposed to have, or should I have blown a kiss at him? You know, (laughs) well. He wouldn't have been able to see me. I've, I've done that before. Uh, but but probably not the right reason. Just to... You know, a, a carnality just rises up, doesn't it? And I'm thinking, here are the Passover, and I'm saying, same to you, buddy. And uh, it, it just, you know, it, it's one of those things. And so we have to think, okay, when do I lose my temper? Well, if that's what you're working on, that doesn't happen to be mine. I've got other areas I'm working on, but... Uh, you know, if that's your 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 weak spot, do I lose it in traffic? And so you pray about it, and you think about it, and you, you meditate on that, and you, you change. I remember one time, getting a little bit upset at somebody, as I was driving behind them in ice and snow up in in Michigan. And uh they're poking along, and finally I got a chance to pass by. And I, I realized this was some little old man or old lady. I, I guess it was a little lady because I thought in my mind, you know, that could have been my mother. And... You, you, you think about those things, and it, it kind of puts in perspective. You're angry until you put it in a different perspective. And then you learn to, to not be so upset when somebody's traveling along slowly, and just start thinking about that. Okay, well, that might be my mother, or that might be my father, or that might be somebody else uh, that 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 I know in that way. I was talking to somebody the other day, and he was coming home from, from Passover, and and all of a sudden... A car in front of him just slammed on his brakes, and he nearly ran into him, but he didn't. And then the car went by, and he slowed down for a car that was in, in front of him that didn't have its lights on. Here it's dark, it's in the middle of nowhere, and didn't have its lights on. And he realized that was one of the church members, one of the older members there. And he was able to kind of, you know flag him down, and get him to turn on his lights. It's You know, we have to meditate. We have to think about these things. But whatever your, your issue is, pray about it, think about it, and work on it. In Romans, the uh, well, let's see, Colossians 3, verse 5, I, I was there, I don't think I read it, it says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, I mentioned some of them, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know, it says fornication, that's sex outside of marriage. Young people today, even some in the church, although not all that are in the church, uh, not by a long shot, but there are some in the church that say, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Everybody's doing it. And then you have older people that think that, well, those laws were just, just made for young people. I'm old, mature, weak. It doesn't apply to us. I've, I've run across that over the years too, where you have to deal with those situations. No, these are things that are pretty obvious that we ought to put to death in our lives. They should not be there. Romans 6. Romans 6. And verse 16. It says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? So we're going to be a slave to something. Are we going to be a slave to God, that it's going to lead to righteousness and to eternal life, or are we going to be a slave of sin which is going to lead to death, as it says there in verse 23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Passover pictures the death of Christ, His shed blood. The night to be much observed pictures the beginning of our journey out of sin. And these days that we go through from now to the end of the Days of Unleavened Bread remind us that we have to be alert to sin, that we can't let down. It's so easy if you forget, you go into the restaurant and they serve, uh, you know, beautiful roles and you've kind of gotten your mind off of things and you just forget. Or maybe during the week and you go and you maybe you're traveling. I know my wife and I are planning on traveling next Wednesday and going to Joplin and then up to Kansas City and and then back and, you know, you, you go into a restaurant along the way and it's, I, I was thinking about it. Everything is just about anything fast food has got leavening in it. I guess you'd get a, a naked burger with, with, with nothing else, but, uh, that's kind of hard to handle. But nevertheless, uh, we have to be careful because if we let down just a little, We have a mouthful of a donut or something else and we realize what we're doing and we're in company and, you know, we forget. Well, that's the way that sin is. Sin crops up so fast in our lives and we have to put it to death. So last night pictured the beginning of this journey and we continue through these seven days being very alert to sin, thinking about it, meditating about it. Praying about it, making sure that we don't make a physical mistake, but even more so, a spiritual mistake. Well, in the time that I have left here, we're going to look into the mirror of God's law, specifically regarding one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to examine ourselves to see how much of that fruit we have in our lives. And maybe for some of you, if you haven't figured out one area to concentrate, maybe this is one to concentrate on. Maybe you've got other things that are more important at the moment, but this is certainly one that we can concentrate on. So the the title of the sermon is Serve God with Joy of Heart. Serve God with Joy of Heart. God commands us to rejoice during His festivals. We're very familiar with the... The command there in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, in verse 26, talking about the Feast of Tabernacles, but really all of the festivals, whenever we come before God in the place that He's chosen to place His name, we normally think of in the Feast of Tabernacles. But He tells us we can have sheep or oxen, wine or similar drink, all that sort of thing. But He says, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. We are commanded to rejoice. In Deuteronomy the 16th chapter, we also read there, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And when you read through Deuteronomy 16, that's in verse 11 by the way, but in the first few verses there, verses 1 through 10, he's talking about the Passover, he's talking about the days of unleavened bread, he's talking about the feast of Pentecost. He's talking about these days that we're observing. So right now as we observe these days, God wants us to rejoice. He wants us to be filled with joy. In Deuteronomy 26, that's that's an interesting one. Let's go ahead and turn over there Deuteronomy 26. He he reviews a bit of the history of Israel. Remember in Deuteronomy this is a restatement of the law he. He goes and reviews the Last forty years because this is happening right before they go into the promised land. And so he talks about all the things that happened there. And in verse one of Deuteronomy 26, it says, And it shall be when you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground and they were to take the first fruits of it and they were offered up to God as thanksgiving for the produce of the land when they first came into the into the land that God had given to them. And they were to say certain things. You shall answer and say before the Lord your God, verse 5, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there. Few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, the world. Of course, we are part of that. And which we mistreat ourselves and others through sin, and laid hard bondage on us, the suffering of sin. Then he cried out to the Lord our God, the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord or the Eternal heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and oppression. And so the Lord brought us out of Egypt, verse 8, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders." And then down in verse 11 it says, So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. So we are to rejoice for all the goodness that God has given to us and think about all that God has given to you. I know that not everybody's the same. Some have had much more difficult lives. Maybe your home uh, life was not the best. Maybe you come from a broken home. Maybe you come from an abusive relationship. Maybe your health has not been very good. But think about all that God has given to us, especially an understanding of the Passover, an understanding of these days of unleavened bread, an understanding of all the holy days all the way to the end, and the hope for loved ones and others who Do not understand the truth now that much of the rest of the world, the Christian supposed world, thinks are just going to fry or burn forever and ever and ever and ever. What precious knowledge that is and how thankful all of us ought to be for that. Consider, in these chapters, chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, chapter 16 and chapter 26, he commands us, To rejoice. You shall rejoice in every good thing. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your household. Now stop and think about that. That's a command. And if it is a command, it means that rejoicing or having joy and happiness is a choice. It's a choice that we can make. We can choose to be happy. We can choose to express that happiness with joy and singing and shouting and all the rest that goes along with uh, being happy, with the smiles that that exude that happiness. We can choose that, or we can choose to look on life in a negative way, in an unhappy way. But how many think of happiness as a choice? You know, when we think of happiness, I think that if we ask somebody, is happiness a choice? They'd probably say yes. But how do people live their lives? Do not most people live as though happiness comes as a result of outside stimuli, outside forces that affect them rather than the inward heart and the mind? If you think about it, all of us know that happiness is a choice. I think we understand that intellectually. But how do we live our lives? It's like going to an amusement park, and you have all the rides there, and you think of happiness as being on the biggest roller coaster there is. And then you get off, and you stand in line, and it's hot, and you're tired, and you're standing on concrete. That's not happiness. We, we somehow think that happiness is, is fun. Happiness is playing a video game, which you become addicted to, and especially violent video games. And that is a huge problem for young people today, especially young men. It's a huge problem. We've talked about it a number of times. And yet I wonder how many of those young men haven't gotten the message yet. Haven't gotten to a place where they say, you know, I've got to change this and then, you know, cut the arm off, so to speak. Take the game and destroy it. Some of those things we have to do. We are to mortify the deeds of the body. And some of those things people think, oh, it's not so bad. It's just, that's just his opinion. You know, this is what, this isn't just our opinion. There are, there are authorities out here who recognize that that young men are not motivated today to do anything but smoke pot and play video games and hang out and play basketball. And the girls in society are getting ahead. It's not that they're bad. They're doing what they need to do, but the boys are not. And so two out of three, not two out of three, but 60%, that's close to it, of the women in universities or the people in university are women. Only 40% men, and they have to cheat to get the men there. In other words, they have to lower the standards for men because the universities don't want to get below that 40%, or they think they'll lose the girls as well. Strange world we're living in. And sometimes people think, well, that's just, you know, his opinion, my opinion, or Mr. McNair's opinion, or somebody else's. But some of us have lived longer, and we, we're seeing the effects of these things. We're seeing there's a different approach in life, a different attitude. I just read an interesting article the other day about um, not, not just uh, video games, but, but the uh, social media in general, and how young people are sitting in front of computers so much of the time instead of doing what their moms said, go out and play and move. And, and that's important for one's health, but also that play, that un, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? The unsupervised play of young people is very important because we learn social skills. I remember growing up where we, and, and we, we wasted plenty of time watching television and some of those things, so we had our problems. We weren't perfect at all. And our parents did throw us out of the house every once in a while, you know, get out of the house. But we used to play baseball and football, but especially baseball. It was a pickup. We called it workup. If you didn't have enough people for two teams, maybe had 12 people out there, then you had different positions or even less than that, and you had different positions. And when you were out, you had to go to the end, you know, left field or right field, wherever it was, and you have to work your way back up again. And there were always disputes, always you're safe, you're not, whatever, all this. You always have that with children playing. But what do you do? You learn to work through the differences. You know, every once in a while somebody would take their ball and go home. But that was not very acceptable, so you, you learn to work it out, don't you? Those skills, those uh you know the, the life skills that are so important. Children have to learn to work those things out. I remember one time right here in the, the Smoky Mountains, traveling from Asheville up to uh, Knoxville. There's a little rest area there, somewhere around uh, Fines Creek or what's that other place? Uh, I can't remember uh, the name of it. But there's a, the rest area there, and we had a group of teenagers, and we stopped, and we uh, we had they had a, a pickup football game. And they were having fun, so some of us who were a little bit older thought, well, we'll get involved in that. So we, we got over there, and pretty soon, you know, we're disputing as, oh, you're across the line or that or that, whatever. Uh, it, us adults were doing worse than the kids were. They were having fun until we got involved. But sometimes it's a matter of letting young people do some of these things that they they work out those life skills that later on in business you have to learn to Compromise in some things. I don't mean compromise with sin, but make compromises and changes until everybody's happy with the deal and and you make the deal. And that's the way it is with children. They learn those skills over a period of time. Now, sometimes it's good to help them along the way, but there are times that they have to work it out themselves. Most people live, as I said, as though happiness comes as a result of outside stimuli. We think that a roller coaster ride is the answer to it or playing video games. Now, it's true when we start talking about happiness and we start talking about joy, it is true that some people are more positive, more happy, more able to roll with the punches, more patient than others. I, I remember an example of of a nurse one time, I think I mentioned this before, sometime in time past, but it was down in the Beaumont, Texas area, we had a a fellow there that had a cancer on the side of his face. It was pretty ugly, and on top of it, it stunk it like dead flesh if you've ever smelt a dead animal it was it was very difficult to be around him, and he was in a nursing home at the end of his life and the minister and I I was a minister of training at the time I would visit him from time to time and we'd come there and we'd stand at the door you know how it is you kind of get used to something after a while and we'd have to kind of slowly move in where we'd get used to the smell enough to you know move a little bit further in and and come in and eventually get up there close enough to talk to him And while we were doing that, working our way in, here was this perky little nurse. And she came down the hall, and she just walked right into that room without any preparation or anything. She had a beautiful smile on her face. I don't know how she could hold it, a smile when, you know, the the smell of everything. And, hello, Mr. Scoggins, how are you doing today? And I thought, you know, that's that's something that she has that I don't have. Some people are just better able to handle situations like that. They're, they're just more positive by nature. I think women sometimes are a little bit more that way than us men. We're, we're more squeamish. It's maybe God made us that way so that, you know, ladies are better at handling babies and all that sort of thing. They have to clean up the, uh, you know, when, when they throw up or whatever. And, and, and the men are, they're, they're outside Choking and gagging. Uh, you know, some people are better able to handle those things, and it is true that some people, just by nature, are more upbeat than others. But, but true and full joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit. As we read in Galatians the twenty, uh, the fifth chapter, and verses twenty-two and twenty-three, it says, "But the fruit of the Spirit is love." And the very second one is joy, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, joy, then, is a gift of the Spirit. And the meaning of the word there is cheerfulness or calm delight. It is true that some people by nature are a little bit more joyful, but the true joy that that lasts, the happiness that's there, you know, through thick and thin, that's something that is a gift of God. And for some of us, we need more of that gift of God than others may need. Have you ever thought that each of the fruits of the Spirit has the component of outgoing concern for others. When you think about it, love is outgoing concern for others. Peace is involved with how we relate with others. Long-suffering or patience. Do we have patience with those around us? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, which could be toward God or even toward others. Gentleness, self-control. All of these things have a component of outgoing concern, how we, how we relate to others, how we interact with others. Now, you might wonder, well, how does joy express outgoing concern? Well, let's notice Romans, the 12th chapter, Romans 12 and verse 15 It says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice is, you know, related there to joy. And he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, oftentimes we think of, okay, that's because so-and-so was made president of the spokesman's club, and I thought I should be, but I'm going to have to rejoice with him. I'm going to have to be happy because he was. But let's bring it down to something that is a little bit more basic than that. How do we react with one another when, for example, I'll, I'll use this example here. My, my wife sometimes buys me a shirt or shirts. And she's always really happy when she does so. She's all excited about it and try it on right now. And, and I'm, you know, I'll, I'll check it out later. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, I, I think how I take away from that happiness that she has when I'm not excited about it. Now, if she didn't buy me a shirt or shirts, I'd probably only have three shirts because I only bought three shirts in the last, I don't know how many years, 50 years, something like that. I probably wouldn't have bought them except that we had... Uh, uh COVID came along, and, and it was right at the beginning we had the Council of Elders, and we were going to have the ministerial conference, and Barry Walker was in town, and I was going to take him down to the uh, NASCAR Hall of Fame. I'd never been there before, didn't know where it was, but we put it in GPS. Well, we found out it was, it was closed because of COVID. So we went to the mall, and we walked down this mall where it was almost totally empty. Almost nobody there. We walked into the Brooks Brothers store and looked around a little bit and found out they had like a double half-off. It was half-off and then half-off again. And so I, I bought three shirts. I, I don't know why, because they were such a good deal. But those are the, those, I take it back. I did buy some for camping. I think some camping shirts uh One or two uh, before that. But the bottom line is, if my wife didn't buy me shirts, I wouldn't have this shirt on today and most of my ties as well. But when she does that, you know, I, I realize that over the years, historically, I've taken away a lot of joy from her. Because she's happy. She's excited that she can give me a gift. And how do I respond to that gift? When your wife makes you a fantastic meal, are you thankful for it? Maybe she has a candlelight dinner for you. Or maybe you as a husband do something for the wife, clean up her car or do something very special. How do we react to one another? Do we express the joy that, that we should you know when you think about the the meaning of joy um, joy is 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 expression of the inward heart in other words happiness is is the state of mind, but joy is is how we express that state of mind, and do we really express that state of mind in a way that that helps others to really enjoy what they're doing, or do we take away from it? I remember someone saying, a, a woman, that, well, she used to fix special things for her husband, but he never seemed to appreciate it, so she stopped doing it. Speaking of, of meals, sometimes we, we, we kill the joy of others by not having some joy ourselves. These days of unleavened bread are a time for self-examination when we are to examine ourselves and find out ways that we can change. And examining the fruits of the flesh and the fruits of the spirit is one way to do it. And considering the fruit of joy, do we really, do we really rejoice as God wants us to rejoice? How we look at service to God is even more important than the surface service that we offer. Do you realize that we can offer service to God, but if the attitude is not right, it's not really service to God? Notice Second Corinthians the ninth chapter. This we often read during the offertory messages which I'm glad. I, I was afraid I was going to be crunching cornflakes up here. Uh, I, I've used a few props over the years, and I usually... And I, one time I was swimming in water, just about, and there was a light fixture. Or fixture. I, it's a wonder I didn't li- electrocute myself. But uh, thank you, Mr. Oral, for not uh, spilling cornflakes all over the place. You made the point. Very good point. Uh, but here in, in 2 second Corinthians, the ninth chapter in verse seven, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, so you can give in a grudging manner. Have you ever gone to someone 's place? Uh, maybe I, I remember a fella had a garden that was way up here in the mountains and and uh, he was showing me his garden and, and and he gave me a few things from his garden. A, I don't know, a cantaloupe or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. But I really didn't want to take it because I could tell that it really wasn't in his heart to do it. He felt like he had to. But you could just read what was going on there. In fact, there's a proverb about that, that to put a knife to your throat, uh, you know, about you know, if, if you're given appetite. But not only that, but if, if someone says something, you know, take, eat this, this is good for you, but but you know that they're really not saying it from the heart. So it says here, God loves a cheerful giver. So don't give grudgingly or of necessity. Oh, i got to do something. Reminded me of the fellow years ago when I lived in England, he asked if I had a, a penny. Now, a penny over there was, you know, about the size of a half dollar at the time. Because he was going to church and he had to put something in a box and he wanted something to make a little bit of noise. Like maybe it was a shilling or a half crown or something like that. Uh, well, it was just a penny. Well, not grudgingly, you don't give because you begrudge the fact. But it says God loves a cheerful giver. So you can give, but if the heart is not right, then that's a problem. God doesn't want us to give grudgingly. Let's take a look at another example, Romans the 12th chapter, Romans 12 and verse 8. Breaking into a thought, it says, He who exhorts in exhortation, He who gives with liberality, He who leads with diligence, and the latter part of verse 8, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So it isn't a matter of showing mercy with a wrong attitude, but a cheerful attitude. Well, I'm going to help you, and and, and uh, you know, you do it grudgingly, and it's obvious that it's grudgingly. No, he says, with cheerfulness. So showing mercy with cheerfulness. Another example is Colossians, the first chapter, Colossians 1, and verses 10 and 11. Again, breaking into a thought that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him. Notice, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, all long suffering with joy. All these things here that we're to do, being fruitful in every good work and knowledge and strengthening with all might. He says, for all patience and long suffering with joy. It's not always easy to be joyful when we're doing some things. And yet that's what God requires of us. That's what He tells us to do. He wants us to serve, but to serve with joy. Now here's some short-term and long-term benefits of a positive, uh, happy, joyful attitude. Over in Proverbs the 17th chapter, this is one that I think we're very familiar with. I'll, I'll just read it. Uh, you can look it up, Proverbs 17, verse 22. A merry heart does good like a medicine. And, and scientists have found this, that people who are positive, people who are happy, people who are of merry of heart, they, they tend to live longer. They tend to be in better health. People who are always negative, always fearful, always down about things, always stressed out, have more health problems as a result. So a merry heart does good like a medicine. Let's go over to James, the first chapter. James 1. This is something that we all need to learn to do. In verse 2, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, we all want to be patient, and we want to be patient right now. We, we need to learn to be patient, and it tests our faith, and, and it creates greater patience. You know, trials don't always end immediately when we want them to. When we're sick, we want to be healed right now. We want a miracle. But sometimes God allows us to suffer a bit because He wants to teach us something, teach us patience. He is here for the, working with us for the long term. He wants children in his family who are going to be faithful and patient forever. Not that our patience has to be forever, but I, in other words, he wants us to live in, in his kingdom forever with all these wonderful qualities that he, he talks about here of love and joy and peace and patience and so forth. So he allows us to go through trials to teach us something because that way he'll know that this person, this individual, uh, will be happy in my kingdom, and they're not going to be a rebel, and they'll be able to treat others the way that I treat people. You know, God treats people and so forth. So he's he wants us to learn those lessons. He tests our faith because it produces patience. That's kind of a, a short-term uh, benefit. But there are longer-term benefits. Notice over in Luke, the sixth chapter, Luke 6, and verses 22 and 23, the Beatitudes here. He says, Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Verse 23, Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. Now, when people are criticizing you and when people are saying ugly things about you, uh, are you happy or are you ready to say, same to you, buddy? Uh, It's hard, isn't it? And yet he tells us to rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Now we have an example of this over in Acts, the fifth chapter, and verse 41, Acts 5. And again, breaking into the uh, the story here, the apostles had been persecuted for righteousness' sake and mistreated. And verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And it goes on to show that in daily in the temple they, they did certain things, but they rejoiced because they were worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. So they were able to do that, and so are we. In Matthew, the 25th chapter, we have the example, Matthew 25, of a parable here. And we'll just read verses 21 and 23. This is where they were given uh, certain uh, gifts. And it says here, his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So there's coming a time when we're going to enter into God's joy. And, and we're going to, you know, God is going to be happy. Can you imagine when He raises us up to be a part of His family? And, and he's waited all this time, and of course time is different for God, but he's been working on this plan a long, long time, long before we came on the scene, long before you know the, the universe, long before time began, as it were. And he is planning for this, and finally this part of his plan is going to come to fruition. It's going to be a time of great joy for him, and it's going to be a time of great joy for us. And I'm sure we're going to express that joy with smiles and with laughter and, uh, you know, real happiness that is going to be expressed there. In Psalm, the 16th chapter, the 16th Psalm, Psalm 16 and verse 11, it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, the joy is mentioned first, the pleasures forevermore. Yes, there are going to be pleasures that go on throughout all of eternity. I imagine we're going to have concerts from angels and maybe concerts from some of us that the rest of us can enjoy. There are going to be pleasures that we can't even imagine. But in His presence is fullness of joy. It isn't just the outside stimuli It is from within because we will have had that character developed in us to where we we are happy by nature when we are born into the very family of God. Now, here are some things you can do to increase your long-term happiness. Over in Philippians 4, I think we're all very familiar with that. Very famous passage there that we often read. But we need to put that into practice. Philippians 4 And verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, in other words, the positive things in life, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Do we think about the positive or do we go around life thinking about all the negative things that we can you know, watching the news can be very negative, especially some of the cable stations where it's just, you know, tear down the president or tear down the former president or whatever, whichever source you watch, it can be very negative. But do we think about the good things? Think about the things that we should be happy about. The 144th Psalm, I'm not going to turn over there, but I'll just quote it, verse 15 It says, happy are the people who are in such a state, happy are the people whose God is the eternal. You know, if God is truly our God, He's the one that we worship, He's the one that we study all the time, it's going to bring about happiness. And I think that that's why many of our people live longer than, than the average. Not all of us, but many do because people are happy. They're not sad all the time. They're happy and joyful. And our feasts bring rejoicing for us, don't they? We enjoy these things. We see positive things in life. In Proverbs, the 14th chapter, verse 21, He who despises his neighbor sins. So if we're looking negatively about our, our neighbor and despising him, God says that's a sin. But he who has a has a mercy on the poor, happy is he. So when we express mercy toward others, that brings about happiness. And that happiness can be expressed with the outward expression of joy. In Proverbs 16 and verse 20, he who needs, heeds the word wisely will find good, and whoever trusts in the eternal, happy is he. When we trust in God, that brings happiness, and happiness from within, can bring that expression of joy without. And we all are familiar with Proverbs 19, verse 18, where it says, Where there is no revelation, the people cast off their strength, but happy is he who keeps the law. When we keep the law, that brings about happiness. If we violate the law, then we're going to have penalties we're paying, whether it be poor health or emotional stress or bad relationships, all that is going to take away from happiness. But the one who keeps the law is going to be happy. You don't have to have all the problems that the world faces. Being content and happy and expressing from the heart that happiness that we call joy is essential to pleasing God. I don't know that we really think of it that way. If I want to be unhappy, I can be unhappy. No. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to express joy. And it is essential if we want to please God. It's not an option. It is a choice. But it's it's the right choice to be happy and to rejoice. Notice this over in Deuteronomy, the 28th chapter. Deuteronomy 28 is the chapter that talks about all the blessings or curses that would come upon Israel. And toward the end of it, in verse 45, he says, Moreover, all these curses, and you can read all the curses that go before it, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue, pursue and overtake you, Until you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder, and on your descendants forever. Notice verse 37. Because you did not serve the eternal your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. You see, when we we are thankful for what God has given to us, when we serve God because we want to, not grudgingly, but because we know it's the right thing to do, and we strive to do it with the right attitude and the right approach and to do so with joy, that brings about a good result. But when we are grudging, and we only keep the law because, well, we have to, that does not bring about the right results. And so Israel sinned. And Israel, because they had a grudging heart, brought all of the evils upon themselves. And so our nation is doing today, our world is doing today. Therefore, verse 48, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Eternal will send against you, in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of everything, And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Why is all that? Well, because we didn't keep his commandments. And he says, because, in verse 47, you did not serve the eternal your God with joy and gladness of heart. So when we look at this, joy and gladness of heart and rejoicing is... it's an option. We don't have to take that option, but it's the right option. It's the good option. It's the one that we, we ought to choose, and it's not a, an option if we want to be in the family of God. It is something that is required. In fact, let me just end with Psalm 32, the 32nd Psalm, and just a couple of verses there. Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11. It says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the eternal, mercy shall surround him. Mercy will surround those who trust in God. And then verse 11, he says, Be glad. Be glad in the eternal and rejoice, you righteous. Now, We are the righteous. I don't mean of and by ourselves, but we are those who are serving God. And so we are to rejoice. This is His command to us. Be glad in the eternal and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So we have the opportunity here at the end of the service to sing a hymn. And you know, there are some people that just sit back and they... I don't want to sing. I'm going to be a sourpuss. I just don't want to sing. I don't like singing. But this gives us the opportunity to make a joyful noise, to shout to God with joy for all the goodness that he's given to us. So be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart.